all my all the technology sorted here. Give me just a minute. About like that. All right. Good morning. Last week uh, we talked a little bit, or I mentioned a little bit about transition and just the the period of transition my family's kind of been in, the period of transition the church has been in, certainly longer than I've been a part of that process. Um, it, and I was kind of reminded of that in the men's meeting. We were just talking about all the different details that kind of come with that, like just things like putting the name on the sign or, or doing this. We were also talking about uh, good things and, and sort of things we can do to maybe get the word out that, that you know, there's a, there's a new preacher in town, or the things we could do like the potluck, that... One of the things we talked about with the potluck was we could maybe call some people we hadn't seen in a while, send some invites out, and say, hey, uh, we have a new preacher. Come come to the church. Come see us. Come get to know us. Come connect with us. And really, the, the, uh, the instigator for that is this period of change. And I, I like that we, we, have this, we have this change, and, and we're using it positively. We're looking at this and saying, what can we do positively because we know we're going through this rather than sort of, uh, almost sitting back and struggling with it or letting it sort of tear us further apart because truthfully, if we're being honest, and I think this is just a human thing, all of us hate change in our personal lives, in our work lives, in our jobs. They, if you go in and they moved your office six inches to the left of where it was yesterday, it's just your whole day is ruined, right? If there's traffic and you can't take this way to work, you've got to go to this way, and now you've got to stop here for the coffee and you can't go over there. We hate change. We're creatures of habit. And so I, I love this idea and this perspective that so many people have had in this process. Of we know we are changing, so how can we use that to actually uh, be better, to, to be positive, to have a, a positive impact? And I think about that because uh, in spite of that tendency to really hate and resist change, uh, we as Christians are called to change, aren't we? We're each called to have this inner spiritual transformation. When you look up transformation on uh, Google, one of the first results is this little caterpillar turned into a butterfly. And I love that because whenever I see it, it takes me back to like the very hungry caterpillar book that I read in grade school. Which, funnily enough, I got as a gift on our baby shower that I'm reading to my son now. So whoever wrote that, they've got to be loaded right. The book's in circulation for 40 years. But it... It takes me back to grade school, and so I remember thinking, like, this ugly little worm-looking thing turns into this beautiful, flying, almost kind of bird. And I just remember thinking about this idea of, of transformation. And it's fascinating, because I, I went through a, a similar transformation just in my own life. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid what I might say might come as a surprise to some of you, but uh, all ministers are not born out of the womb in our little suit and ties, just ready to understand the Word of God. Um, there was a bit of a transformation in my life. For a long period of my, my life, I kind of had my faith over here, and I had the rest of my life over here, and those didn't really have anything to do with each other until finally we had uh, what we would call a come-to-Jesus meeting, right? And things changed. You could say things were transformed. And so I want us to be thinking about the idea of our own spiritual transformation. Um, what it means for you as, as an individual Christian to be transformed. And I say that because at some point in our series that I've been kind of teasing for a couple weeks now, uh, we're going to talk about what it means to be a transformational church. But first we have to understand that a transformed church is just a group of people who are individually transformed Christians. 
And that might either sound really obvious to you or really strange. But I want us to understand that we, when we, we say things like, well, our, our church needs to change. And I don't mean necessarily here specifically we are saying that, but just sort of in general and hypothetical, people will talk about it. Like, well, our, our church needs to change. Or our church needs to do better about this. Or we, as a church, we need to do more of this. Or we'll say, oh, brother, what we really need to hear is just a, a good lesson on not forsaking the assembly or on orderly worship or on modesty or on giving. Or a... And in truth, that, that might help. I don't want to uh, dismiss the power of teaching, certainly while I'm in the middle of teaching. But really, really what we need in those scenarios is all of us as individuals to go home and make intentional, conscious decisions to change. Because when we think about the work of the church and we think about the, j- j- just being the body of Christ as a community of Christians, what we really need for the church to continue to prove is those of us who, who probably know we could be doing more or know we could be doing better to, to, to go home and make those intentional decisions to change. So when we talk about being a transformed church, I want us to understand that all that means is we have to be transformed Christians. I think sometimes we can get it in our heads that the, the, the church is this sort of separate machine on the wall that we can go and twist knobs and push buttons and things will just happen. The church is us. How can the church change if we are not changing? And I've, I've probably spoken entirely too long without opening my Bible. So if you have one, please turn with me to Romans 12. Romans 12. might be wondering why I've been talking so much about transformation or change, and hopefully this will shed some light on what I mean by that. Romans 12, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So as I I say change, because saying the word transformation over and over kind of just gets boring, to be honest with you. But when I'm talking about change, I'm not saying we need to pivot or we need to take a totally radical new direction. But I want us to recognize that As Christians, we are told to be completely transformed, which truthfully is a word much weightier than change, if I'm being honest. We are not called just to update or to tweak or to modify our behavior, but to truly be completely transformed. I think Romans 12.2 is one of those verses we've probably heard before. Right a handful of times. It's an often cited verse, certainly. But I, I kind of want to break this down and dig into it a little bit. Because even if you just read verse 2, there's about four commands packed into verse 2. And so we're really going to focus on that and look at what that means to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And by testing and discerning the will of God. As I mentioned, there's about four things there packed into verse 2. And the first one is what we've been sort of talking about or referencing Actually, the first one is do not be conformed. Conform is a weird word, at least for me. I don't use that a lot. One of my best friends when I'm reading the Bible is Webster's Dictionary. i got to look a lot up. Conform 
means to comply with rules, standards, or laws, to behave according to socially acceptable conventions or standards, as in the pressure to conform, to be similar in type or in agreement. Do not be conformed to this world. We think about that and what that means. The world certainly has ways that it expects us to behave, doesn't it? Sometimes this is simple things in our everyday life, like going the speed limit or following the person in front of you if you're in a line. But sometimes, sometimes, especially when we think about what our culturally acceptable attitudes are nowadays, sometimes there is social pressure to conform in ways that are counter to the Word of God. There is certainly pressure to conform. I believe it was last week we talked about just the, the overwhelming pressure in our society to, to pursue money above all things, that the wealth and, and, and success should just be at the complete forefront of your goals in life. And we talked about how God looks at that and he just rejects it entirely. And he said, if you were to follow me, you cannot be conformed in that way. So that, truthfully, our priorities and our goals in life are just one of the many ways as Christians that we are not to be conformed. Since the beginning of time, if you go all the way back to the beginning of the law, the giving of the law, it's in the earliest books of the Bible. One of the defining characteristics of God's people is that God's people are different than other people. They are set apart. They are called to be different. This is from Leviticus 20, 26. God says, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. And you talk about a weighty verse. But if, if we are a part of the people of God, that means God has called us out to say, yes, there's a bunch of other people in the world, but you if you were to be transformed, it's because I want you to be mine. God calls us to be his. Part of belonging to him and being holy, as that text says, text says, is to sometimes be separate or different from the world around us. In that same passage in Leviticus, the Lord tells the Israelites not to walk in the ways of the nations he is driving out. Because he actually says, they did those things and I detested them. And he says, therefore, you specifically, you, you need to be different. From the beginning, God's people have always called to be different, to be called out. Our, our very word for church in the Bible, it comes from this Greek word, ekklesia. And that ekklesia is like a compound word that literally means called out. That means at the very root of who we are as a church, one of our defining characteristics should be that we are not conformed to the world. Something kind of interesting. Uh, I mentioned how really always God has called his people to be different. You, you can find a lot of verses like Leviticus 20, 26, but most interestingly is you will never find God tell his people, you know, just whatever the world's doing, just do that. Whatever you see people doing, kind of just, you know, follow them. He always calls us to be different. And so if you're setting your schedule for the week or you're talking to your kids about your priorities and how we're going to spend our time or what we're going to do or we're going to not do. I'm sure every parent has said this and every kid has heard this, but your child comes home and they're like, why can't I do this? So-and-so gets to do this. Why can't I do this? They're not my kid. That's why you don't get to do that. 
Well, you've heard them say, well, well, if all those other kids went and run off a cliff, would you follow them? And if you're eight, you're like, yeah, I want to know what's off the cliff. <laughs> I think sometimes we let our minds, this idea of conforming, seep into our minds, and we try to almost justify everything by other people's expectations. And we try to say, well, if the will of God calls me to be this way, and the world wants me to be this way, well, maybe I'll be about here in the middle, and I'll sort of be socially acceptable, but still trying to do the will of God. I think sometimes we need to remember that one of our defining characteristics is to be separate or different from the world. And so it's okay if God calls us to be a certain way and that is not the way the world likes us to be. That's okay. That is fundamentally not a problem. But I think sometimes in our minds, we let it stop us. We let it influence our decisions and our behaviors. I think sometimes... We have one eye on what God tells us to do and one eye on kind of how people are looking at us. We have one eye on the world. And we let that influence and shape us. I'm reminded of the words of Joshua. Joshua 24, 15. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Do not be conformed to, and the text specifically says, do not be conformed to this world. In John 17, when, when Jesus is in the garden and he's praying, and, and I love the Gospel of John because it has this long, long discussion on what Jesus prayed for. And that's just such a wonderful insight into the mind of our Savior. And one of the things he prays over and over, but we have specifically for us in, in John 17, is they are not of this world just as I am not of this world. And he prays for his disciples. And Jesus says that fundamentally, Jesus says he is from a different place and he is going to a different place. And that if we are his, we are also not of this world. And in fact, in that same text, he goes so far as to say that the world hated them because they were not of it. Because as we talked about, the world wants us to conform. One of my favorite hymns is, This world is not my home. We're just a passing through. And so I, I think about that hymn because I wonder, if this world is not our home, why do we let those people in this area that is not our home, why do we let them dictate our behavior? Why do we let... I, sometimes if my wife and I are traveling and we're at a restaurant, I'll make some sort of dad-level joke to the, to the waitress and my wife gets all blushed. She's like, why are you doing this? I'm like, we don't live here. I don't got to see these people again. I, don't, I, don't, I can embarrass myself. We don't live here. I mean, I get it. You guys reside in Dover, Stewart County, Houston County, Bumpus Mills. But the world, we don't care what those people think. And I get we can talk about um, our conduct being right. I'm talking about being rude or dismissive of people in the world. Please, please let me be clear about that. Our, our conduct should always be upright. It should be righteous. But why do we care what people who are not God think? We are not from here and we are not going to stay here. This world is not our home. Therefore, we should not be conformed to this world. The text doesn't stop there, of course. It goes on in Romans and he says... Do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
I would love to spend all day talking about not conforming because I think the second part is a little weird to understand. I've been told to change my mind, open my mind, empty my mind. Never been told to renew my mind. It's another one of those phrases that we really only see in the Bible. And so we read it and we go, what? Are you, what? what are you talking about, Paul? How, how am I transformed by the renewal of your mind? Thankfully, Paul uses this phrase a couple different times. And so we're going to uh, switch gears here. And turn with me to Ephesians 4.22. And we're going we're, we're to explore what Paul says over in Ephesians 4.22. And we'll come back and we'll see if it can't shed some light on Romans 12. And actually, I'm going to begin in verse 17. From Ephesians 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. To put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. As I said, we've probably heard that, that text from Romans 2, to do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And if you're anything like me, that's one of those phrases you've heard so many times that you didn't even really stop to think about what it meant. In Ephesians, Paul goes into a little bit more detail about how we can renew our minds or what it means to renew our minds. He says, the nations, the Gentiles, they walk in futility of their minds. He says, they, they don't have understanding. He says, they don't know God the way you know God. And he says, because they are ignorant of God, they're actually separated from him. And because they are separated from God, they have this hardness in their heart that you and I are not to have. And because of all these things, because of their ignorance, because of their separation, he actually says, they have they've become callous. They've been given over to, to impurities, to a, a sinful way of living, essentially. He says they do not know God, therefore they are separated from God. And because they are separated from God, they are living in sin. They are lost, we would say. Fallen. They don't know God. He says, but that is not the way you learned. He's telling Christians, he says, you know better. He said the Gentiles are ignorant of God. He says you, you know better, which means you should know not to live as they do. You should know not to be caught up in the things they're caught up in. He says you were taught to put off your old self. So the old self is corrupt. He even uses this phrase, deceitful desires. I want to pause just for a moment on that phrase because I, that idea of deceitful desires... 
Because if there's another trend I see more and more in our, in our culture today, it's this idea that if I desire something, I almost deserve it. Or if I really want something bad enough, I at least have the right to try and get it or pursue that thing. And that no one can say anything against me because, well, I want it. What do you mean? I, just, I want it. Surely I should be allowed to at least chase it, right? Paul says, no desires that are counter to knowledge of God are deceitful desires. He said, if we want to put off our former self, we need to leave behind those kind of desires. Of course, it is James who talks about temptation leading to desire, desire leading to sin, and sin ultimately leading to death. We can have deceitful desires. We need to leave those with our old self if we are to be transformed. We are to be modeled after God in the likeness of Him. As he says in this text in Ephesians. If we are to truly be transformed into a likeness of God. We need to recognize. That the way we are acting. Thinking. Talking. Behaving. Yes even our very wants and desires. Were corrupt. They were deceitful. And he's telling us that this, this renewal. It has to start in our mind. Or if you're a, a figurative person, the desire starts in your heart, right? I guess I'm strictly biological. Well, no desires in your brain too, sorry. It's not, it's not here. Um, but he says that renewal of your spirit, it has to begin with your mind. Vince Lombardi, and I apologize for this incredibly dated reference, but Vince Lombardi very famously said he, he won so many championships that named the trophy after him, for the record. But he, he very famously said that we win our games in practice. We win our games where we train to be disciplined in the most fundamentally sound team in the league. This ties in a little bit to what we talked about last week. Before a Christian, our thoughts, if you could view it this way, our thoughts are our practice. Nobody hears them. Nobody sees them. You're not, no one's going to judge you differently for your thoughts as long as they stay your thoughts, Right? And I'll tell you what, if I'm a really clever speaker, I can talk myself into just about anything being truthful. I can justify just about every desire that I have. And no one could judge me for that because those are just my thoughts, right? Paul says if, if you are to be transformed, this renewal of yourself, it has to begin in your mind. It has to begin with taming those deceitful desires. As I mentioned in James, it is temptation that leads to desire, desire to sin, and sin to death. But that same renewal can work the same way. If we're to be renewed in our actions, in our hearts, in our emotions, we need to begin with how we train our minds. We need to start with the way we think about things. The way we think about maybe people who are less fortunate than us, people who are different from us, people who are... Uh, even people who are counter to the will of God. How do we see those people? Do we see them as Jesus saw them? Do we see things the way God sees them? Do we think about things the way Christ thought about things? 
the renewal must begin with our mind. And if you and if you read the rest of Ephesians 4, Paul actually goes on to talk about what our speech should be like as Christians, what our what our actions should look like, what our emotions should look like, how Christians should handle anger. And he, and he goes on the rest of the chapter to talk about those things, but in verse 23 he says that all begins with the renewal of your mind. We begin to draw to our conclusion this morning. I want to revisit Romans 12:2 as we said as I said we would. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. I'm going to pause there. Paul says, It is only after we have renewed our minds that we can even begin to understand the will of God in our life. If there's one pervasive question that I think Christians and non-Christians share alike. It is the, the what is my goal in life? What is my purpose? As Christians, I think we phrase this as what is the will of God for my life? We've all asked that at some point. And what Paul is telling us in Romans 12 too is he says, before you can even discern the will of God for your life, you need to make sure you are renewed in your mind. Which makes sense if you think about it. How, how can I read a map and choose the right path if my vision is not even clear? And how can I navigate my way out of something if I can't even read the compass I'm holding? And so he says, first renew your mind and then, then you can discern the will of God for your life. And he goes on to say that it is the will of God that is good, acceptable, and perfect. This is another instance where I think sometimes we might have a problem with this, if we're being honest. Sometimes we see the will of God as this very hard and almost impossible to attain standard. And we go, I don't know. I can try, but can I really do the will of God? Paul says the will of God in your life should be good. It, should, it, it is perfect and it should be acceptable to us. This goes right back to the idea of conforming, but do we always view the will of God as acceptable? Do we view the will of God as negotiable? Might be a better way of looking at it. As I said, when we're stuck in that phase or that, that, position, that, um, that season of our life where we feel like we are still conforming, sometimes we, we know the will of God is over here, but we feel the societal pressure to be over here, and so we end up kind of in this middle ground. Paul says the will of God should be acceptable. To us. That's not to say that the will of God is always easy. There's many, many scriptures that the Bible talks about exactly what is the will of God. First, First Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God. First Peter 2.15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. First Thessalonians 4.3 for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Next time you hear someone just sort of waxing philosophical and saying, I wonder what the will of God is for my life, say, abstain from sexual immorality. See what they say. The will of God has a lot of, it's very far reaching. It encompasses a lot of things. But I read those because the fact of the matter is the will of God is not always easy. That's the truth. 
but we need, in the way that we think about it, in the way we view it, we need to understand that the will of God should be acceptable to us. It's okay to tell God, I'm a, this is not easy, this is hard, this is difficult, but it is not okay to say, therefore, I'm not going to do it. The will of God should be acceptable to us. For most of us, for most of us, if we're being honest with ourselves, our difficulty with the will of God is typically what amounts to almost a social or logistical inconvenience. In 1 Peter 4.19, it actually says that the will of God is that some will suffer because of their faith. We're probably blessed. Well, I'm definitely blessed, but we're probably blessed enough that very few of us in here will ever truly suffer for our faith, especially if we're putting this in the context of the, the first century church. When we talk about why the will of God is hard, and we try to compare it to that standard, what we're talking about is often a minor inconvenience compared to the suffering that is talked about in the Bible. Perhaps it is the will of God that we take on a little bit more than we currently bear in terms of spiritual responsibility. Maybe it's to, to come to just that one more thing a week or a month. Make just a little bit more time in your schedule for your, your family or your, uh, an at-home Bible study. You're just talking with your, either your children or the family member who doesn't quite think or believe the same way that you do. These are difficult things, I understand. It's rough sometimes. I, I, I think about this in the context of being a parent more and more now than ever. But to be a spiritual example for my children, things like turning the other cheek, going the extra mile, loving your enemies, these are not easy things. Those are just the basics, right, of what Jesus talks about. The will of God is sometimes very hard. But it has to be acceptable to us. We have to renew our minds and think about the way that we view things, the way that we then speak and act. Our message from Romans 12 is pretty simple. It's easy to do the will of God when what he asks is easy, but it is important to do it when it is hard. Famous boxer Muhammad Ali, another very current reference. He said, when I'm working out, I start counting when it starts hurting because that's when it matters. Someone asked him, well, how many push-ups do you do, Ali? Or how many sit-ups, how many crunches? And he said, I start counting when it starts hurting. We talked about in our Bible class this morning that we will be judged by all of our deeds. But when we think about the example that we want to leave... It's easy to do the will of God when the will of God is easy, but it is important to do the will of God when the will of God is hard. If we want to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, we need to understand God's will for our life. It has to be acceptable to us. It has to be something that we apply in a way that is renewing our entire person. In order to be transformed, we have to understand that it is good, acceptable, and perfect. And then we too can have that renewal. If you are with us this morning, if you are worshiping with us, and God is calling you 
to be renewed, whether you are already a Christian or whether you're somebody who is lost, who is separated in their knowledge of God, as the text talked about. If there's any need we can do for you this morning, we ask that you make that known at this time, while we stand and while we sing.